Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. Rampant fake news is, horrifically enough, a given these days. But at least with fake news, your attention is actively being brought to an event or issue, even if via an outright lie. My guest today is here to talk about important stories and issues that virtually never see the light of day or are covered up either completely or reported on fake news style in a way that totally distracts from real hard truths crying out for exposure. Diablo College Professor of Social Science and History, Mickey Huff, is the director of Project Censored, a nonprofit media watchdog organization that every year publishes a now famous book listing the top 25 most important news stories that have been ignored or covered up. Today, Professor Huff is going to talk about Project Censor's latest book, titled State of the Free Press 2021, as well as the project's latest documentary, United States of Distraction, Fighting the Fake News Invasion. Full disclosure, I contributed an essay about the whistleblower newsroom to the State of the Free Press 2021 book, for which I did not seek nor receive any compensation. Also, Professor Huff is my friend. Welcome, Mickey. <laughs> Tina, it is uh, an honor to be called your friend. And uh, <laughs> it's great to have you back in the censored volume. It's been a few years since uh, you did the introduction for us one year. That was nearly yeah, yeah. a decade ago. Yeah, um, yeah. It's been you, a while. You've been in the trenches um, for quite some time. So it's always an honor to, to sit down with you and, and have a conversation about, well, something that we both love dearly and also something that we equally fret about um, in yeah. terms of the, the free press, the access to, to a free press. And, and uh, well, you know, you and I both seem to be of the mind of fighting censorship of, of any guys. Right, yeah, and so yeah, project, yeah. project censored. We've been doing that since 1976, and uh, it's our 45th year, uh, believe it or not. And um, you know, Andy Lee Roth and I are still going at it. And um, unfortunately, we have more than enough to fill a book every year. <laughs> I know. You know, I was I was thinking about that as I was reading the uh, your latest book, and I'll tell you. One thing that really struck me, and it strikes me almost every year when I read the Project Censored books, is the recurring themes. And in this one, you have several of the top 25 that have to do with people of color, the abuse of people of color, you know, the uh, disappearance particularly of women of color. I, could, you talk, could you talk about that? Because I, I know that um, you know, you're, you're number one on the list is uh, the kidnapping, sexual trafficking, and rape of indigenous women from tribal reservations, rural communities, urban areas. It's a huge, huge problem. You never hear, first of all, you never hear anything about Native Americans. You know, Christina, yeah, thanks for that um, introduction and apt observation. Um, you know, if we went through the lists every year, 
um, which we, we, Andy and I do when we put these books together, uh, it's impossible not to see the troubling patterns of the kinds of stories that are underreported, um, not widely reported, uh, other than in the independent press or alternative, so-called alternative media, uh, ignored, in other words, by the so-called mainstream. And I suppose this is a good place to get that out of the way right from the beginning. We don't use the term mainstream media to talk about the networks or cable or the New York Times or the Washington Post or uh, you know, legacy media, establishment media, corporate media is the term that we mostly gravitate towards for descriptive purposes. Because when you use the proper descriptors about these media outlets, it really calls attention to what's behind those publications and what determines this, what determines their lens or their view or their vision or their frame. And you, of course, are a veteran of uh, you know cri critical media literacy, of journalism, um, deconstructing propaganda and disinformation. Um, unfortunately, our country doesn't really teach those skill sets in the K-12 area, and we don't do a great job of it in higher education. And one thing that the corporate media do, maybe arguably the worst, is cover their own biases, shortcomings, and foibles, other than when pointing the fingers at each other. Right, right. right. And so that's why I was out of the gate, just wanna let people know that we don't talk about mainstream media as that way. That's a great propagandistic coup, linguistically and semantically for those private for-profit corporations to convince the public that they're the reliable mainstream. They report, you decide, wow, right? Wow, that's true, yep. You're familiar with all those slogans. I'm glad you're reminding me of that, yep. yep. Yeah, so we tend to use those descriptors. Corporate is very precise. It's corporate yeah. media, yep. And look, it's not like independent alternative media don't have biases. It's just far more obvious to usually tell what they are. You know, the New York Times recently in the last year, one of their the, their main editor was in an interview. I'm, I'm going to get to your important uh, question about the indigenous women and girls here, but I just figured that this was an important frame. Oh, no, I get it. I get it. Follow through. Um, but in an interview, the editor of the New York Times was talking about how objective they were and how they didn't have any bias. And in the next paragraph, they went on to talk about their, you know, they went on to talk about uh, how they support neoliberal economics and neoliberalism. And I mean, in other words, they went on to say they aren't biased except for this. It's like the except fish in the water bias, telling The neoliberal bias. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, just because you're the fish in the water and you don't know you're in the water doesn't mean the water isn't there and it doesn't impact you in some way. Exactly. So exactly. out of the gate, that's what we try to call attention to so that when people do look at the news, it doesn't make the news and we analyze why. That's a really big frame, that and the propaganda model that I'm sure we'll talk about later with Ed Herman and Noam Chomsky that's still relevant over 30 years later. Um, but you're right. You said um, something that I think everybody should get in a circle and say collectively out loud. We as a society in the United States don't talk about indigenous peoples, first peoples, um, BIPOC, black indigenous people of color, we don't talk about them in an historical context or in a contemporary, even in a contemporaneous way. In the most cases, we don't talk about these groups at all. 
um, right. unless you're talking about the scandal at the at the at the sports team and what they have to change their name, or um, or uh, the the pipeline when they were demonstrating against the uh, fighting right. the pipeline, uh, right? Or we're out here in California, endanger their water supply, you know? Right. All of a of sudden, course. they become domestic terrorists. You know? I, I, right. And and out here in California. Um, you know, the conversation is always, well, the Native American casinos and real estate. And, and it's like, okay, hold on. <laughs> let's go back a few hundred years and let's take a look, right? Culturally, politically. Um, what we have here, and many historians have weighed in on this, as well as anthropologists and others, we're dealing with something akin to a genocide, right? Um, a of course, long, slow. Yeah. You know, yeah. incremental, multi-generational. Yeah, and for a society with sociological speed up and instant gratification, where we want everything five seconds ago, um, you know, um, that doesn't really fit into that. That's square peg round hole problem, right? And and in the U.S., as Gore Vidal said, we're the United States of amnesia. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. And, and and I would argue that it's hard to forget things that people are not taught. Right. Right. So part of what we do in the book every year is when we're going through and we're highlighting these underreported stories is we're saying these stories have been vetted. They've been fact checked. They've been researched by students and professors. That's how we're teaching this curriculum. And they end up on a ballot of several hundred stories that our national judges look at and they end up on a list every year. And we think that these are standout important stories. They're obviously not the only ones, but they're the most significant. And back to your riff of themes. There's a theme here. And if you go back intersectionally, you'll see that stories about people in lower or poor economic status, people of color, women, they tend to be covered less um, and their challenges covered less by corporate media. And if and when they are, they tend to be grossly distorted. Well, I'll tell you something. One of the things that just lit my hair on fire, besides the fact that um, you know, the Urban Indian Health Institute logged 5,712 reports of murdered or missing Native American women. It's, by the way, in the, uh, amongst people of color, it's the women and children who are really abused. I, I, you know, Black Lives Matter, I've never heard Black Lives Matter talk about the 64,000 missing Black women and girls who haven't been found because their stories haven't. I mean, I black. I, they they cover the the shootings, which is extremely important, and I'm so thrilled that they do that. But when I saw that 64,000 missing women and children, I thought, this is this is crazy that this hasn't seen the light of day. I'm afraid that I uh, agree, um, and that's again. There were, there were a lot of factors that went into our deliberations about the rankings. I feel funny sometimes about the rankings of the most censored story or what have you, because I think they're all important. And even the ones that don't get to the final list are all significant and important yeah, and things yeah. the media should be doing and covering. But when you look at the mall and you just did Christina, when you look at the multiple layers to this story about how uh, we have missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, uh, this was a report from Think Progress, Yes Magazine, The Guardian, uh, Ms. Magazine. Um, this is, again, there are people writing about this, but it doesn't, again, it does not crack the 
um, sort of, and I'm going to use this term out of context, the quote mainstream consciousness, the idea of the bulk of the population. And if the media is supposed to be reporting mainstream to the mainstream, these stories just don't even rise to that level. Well, and then, and then it, what's interesting is even if you go international with the people of color story, again, in the list is big pharma going to India and can't place like India and Cambodia and selling, uh, forcing their salespeople or encouraging their salespeople to illegally sell antibiotics to quack doctors because India has like, they're missing, they need about 600,000 more physicians than they have. So they're these, this, these legions of quack doctors who are prescribing antibiotics and, and willy-nilly with no control to the point now where apparently, in, and this is in Cambodia as well, but they say that you in the book, it says that India is ground zero for these superbugs that are coming out of India because of this horrific practice of letting these quack doctors. So, and I've also heard of vaccination projects again mm -hmm. in africa you know again exploiting exploiting these people for money you know and it's just and of course you've got you know yemen uh, the trafficking of i mean it's well the proxy war in yemen i mean yeah. nearly half the population on the brink of starvation through the the war with you know the that the us was backing through saudi arabia um perhaps there's some changes afoot in the past week or two yeah but we're talking again about women being sexually trafficked oh, and absolutely no no we're this talking about again. we're talking yeah. about in in mexico the plasma market you know poor people being paid for their we're talking about um those poor kids who were separated from their parents at the border i mean the the abuse goes on and on and and this is just not even the, this is not even an atom of what's going on but at least in this country, in this country, attention to what's going on among the Native Americans with, with their women being abused and raped and killed and not accounted for, with their kids committing suicide oh, yeah. at, at record levels, which is also in your book, with 64,000 uh, Black women and children missing, it's like, what the hell? Why isn't anybody covering this? Well, that's our question at the at Project Censored, right? Is um, that's the whole like the news that doesn't make the news and why, right? right so right. here's a bunch of news that you really should have at your ready. At, you shouldn't have to go digging for it. Um, part of the free press provisions and protections in the Constitution acknowledge the importance of having a well-informed public, but we've totally outsourced that to private for-profit corporations. And so in there lie, lies the conflicts of interest, the significant problems that winnow and shape the frame of what is quote newsworthy, right? Right. And and who are the new? And we're now riffing on Herman and Chomsky already. The new who's a worthy victim, right? Um, who's worthy to talk about in what way? And you know, there's a great quote, a sad one, but a very apt and accurate one in that first story about indigenous women. Um, from Anita Lucchesi from Sovereign Bodies Institute, where Anita says, I wouldn't say we're more vulnerable 
I'd say we're targeted. Um, so even this gets to the to the corporate frame. Even when you yeah. see the, the the corporate media cover native issues, you know they 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 are mindful to some degree that this is a disenfranchised population. You know, in, in the in the era of corporate performative wokeness, right? There's there's token nodding to yes, mistakes were made. Um, some of these monuments are bad, and some of these things aren't great, and. We should change the Washington Redskins name to the Washington football team. That I can even say the word, that R word out loud, right? Shows you how even there's this huge schism in our country on civil rights. I couldn't come on to a program like yours and spout the N word out of historical context, but we can use racial epithets for indigenous peoples all day because it's completely out of sight, out of mind. People don't even think about it. You have these racist symbols of indigenous people for the Cleveland Indians or, I yeah, mean, what yeah. this is rampant in corporate sports, right? The, the Kansas City Chiefs, uh, I don't watch football, but um, I, I do study pop culture and media. Um, and, and last week when they were on that game before the Super Bowl, you can audibly hear in the background a predominantly white male crowd uh, chanting Native American thing. I mean, it's just absolutely crazy appropriation. So the ways in which we even get to see most of us indigenous culture in the United States comes through this incredibly biased patronizing frame. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. So and, 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 it, and again, I think it's very important, you know, behind all that are all these horrific things going on. Another thing you mentioned in your book, was how some of the, the disappearance and sexual abuse and trafficking of these women was connected to these man crews in several states um, that are working on the Keystone Pipeline. Yes. And I mean, terrible abuses and, and you don't hear anything. You don't hear anything ab ab about it. It's just, it's just crazy. And so I, go yeah. ahead. No, go ahead, Christina, go ahead. Well, I wanted to move on to another ch chunk of area, uh, the First Amendment uh, <laughs> challenges, okay? Yeah. So the first thing I'd like you to talk about is the criminalization of uh, environmental activism. Now, you know, people who are protesting against environmental destruction uh, are likely to be called domestic terrorists. For example, um, in March 2020, South Dakota, West Virginia, and Kentucky passed laws criminalizing fossil fuel protests. How can that even be legal? Well, there's a long history of targeting um, any kind of progressive or left or people's rights movement or environmental rights movement. Um, you, know, you can go back a hundred years ago, the early FBI targeting Marcus Garvey, <laughs> the continued targeting uh, through Martin Luther King, um, black identity extremists. So we know that the state targets racial justice movements, environmental justice movements too. If you go back to the George W. Bush years, and I know you'll remember the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. Yeah. Um, Right, that where where they were literally targeting so that any anyone anyone who protested a company that happened to have any of their products made of animals was considered an act of terrorism because it interfered with their right to trade and profit. 
I mean, it's absolutely outlandishly Orwellian definitions here. And we see that continuing to the present. Monsanto, who we've been writing about Monsanto for decades. And they're right? they're in this uh, they're in this year's issue too. They're here too. They created an intelligence center to target journalists and activists for reporting about their environmental degradation. Well, and about uh, and about and specifically, they attacked the Reuters. And I had her on my on my show, by the way, Gilliam, uh, talking. You know, when she exposed that Roundup caused cancer. And they they went after her, and they went after Reuters. With by the way, they call they call their intelligence it's it's called a, an intelligence fusion yes group or something like that. It's fusion like some Orwellian yeah. thing, yeah. and uh, yeah. So they they and and they and they hire these people, so called experts, to deflect, and it's just it's. I don't know. They have PR, P, you know, multi-billion-dollar PR flack machines. Um, they have they set up these centers. They have this huge PR budget. They sue anyone into silence. You'll remember over twenty years ago, Monsanto. Yeah, but they didn't win. They didn't win that roundup fight at all. I mean, they're no. offering. Bayer bought out Monsanto, yeah. right? Well, and, and now they're offering. They've been offering eight billion. I don't know if they took that. I, don't I know think. What I, I think. I think a lot of folks at Bayer are lamenting the decision to take on, you know, to take up Monsanto, um, the liability. Right. But you'll remember Monsanto was responsible over two decades ago for the Fox News crisis in in Florida, Jay where Jay they ultimately were able to suppress news stories. And they were able to get a court ruling that didn't support the whistleblower journalists. Oh yeah, right? I mean they drove Jane and her husband into practical In bankruptcy. bankruptcy. Yeah. I mean it was terrible. Yeah. It was, so, it was, and and then uh, the court the court decided at one point this was because they're in my book into the buzz. Yes. Yeah, and, I know. Into and, the buzzsaw is a fantastic book. So is Feet to the Fire, by the way. <laughs> thank you. But um, they the court actually ruled that Fox News did not have an obligation to report the truth. That's right. And if you want to flip that around, it means they can technically legally lie or omit information if it's detrimental to their shareholders. It's crazy. Yeah. And, and by the way, the same person that was on the board at Fox and Monsanto is the one that was like getting them in the know about it. He later went on to be a big figure in the Obama administration. Right. I mean, again, these revolving doors between these big corporations and alleged government regulatory oversight, um, yeah. oh, or the regulatory huge... capture, regulatory capture is a huge problem that is just, you know, it's kind of it's a version of greenwashing right among these environmental uh, among these oil companies and so on. Right. Um, so there's a concerted effort to try to control narratives. The one of the stories in the book, story 11, is new green scare law enforcement crackdown on environmental activism um, from the progressive. Um, that's another story where uh, Elizabeth King wrote about this story, and that's where environmental protect protesters risk incarceration and drawn out legal battles in many cases for completely trumped up cases. They're legitimately exercising their First Amendment rights, whether it's to stand off on public property and video factory farming, right? That's been considered a crime. Filming of these things is now somehow a crime. No, yeah, yeah. It's a yeah, crime I mean, because they don't want you to see it. Just like Wiki, you know, Assange is a criminal because he exposed the, uh, you know, the shooting of- uh, yeah, yeah, 
I mean, it's a topsy-turvy world. People. And a lot of the stories that we cover at the project are like those kinds of stories, right? They're the, they're, in many cases, they're, they're almost meta stories in a way because they go in and look at how the so-called free press is a propaganda arm for the interests that own and control it. And they maintain this illusion of reporting and, and that they tell the public what they need to know, which, which of course they do on occasion. I mean, that's of course, and you know this, you've worked for these kinds of, of news yes. outlets before. <laughs> you know intimately oh, yeah. oh, wow. how they yeah. work, right? They're I... like, well, one day they're doing something great. And then the next day, Christina, Dan Rather says, sorry, I don't think so. Um, I mean, come well, on. Yeah, because you go into territory that is, you go into project censored territory. That's well, there you go. And that's unfortunately <laughs> why we have this book every year with Seven Stories Press, um, is that we can fill the book with the things that people really ought to know that they don't. And again, one of the things we cover is, you know, where is the media failing, right? And we have long covered how the media frame whistleblowers negatively. Um, you know, and a lot of people forget that it was the Obama administration that persecuted and prosecuted more whistleblowers combined than any president in history, not Trump. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm not yeah. saying Trump was good by no, any. No, that trend. doesn't. Yeah, that's. A, right. By the way, I want to before we get to that, I I want to talk about another First Amendment issue. I think this is super important, and this is super not covered for a number of reasons. Um, it's Abby Martin's case here. Oh in yeah, Georgia. Talk about Abby. Explain what what the situation is with her. So yeah, Abby Martin. Um, you know we've worked with Abby for years. Abby Martin of the Empire Files. I'm sure your viewers and listeners uh, are familiar with her. And if they're not, I hope they become familiar with her. And of course, her brother Robbie Martin over at Media Roots and Media Roots Radio. Um, they do a lot of great things. And um, uh, Abby's partner Mike Preisner, Eyes Left Podcast on Veterans Against the War. I mean. They do so many amazing things, this just small group of folks. Well, Abby Martin also helped us do our last film, United States of Distract and Fighting the Fake News Invasion, a whole documentary on how to fight fake news. Um, Abby was actually uh, invited to be at a critical media literacy conference in Georgia that happens every year. Um, and we were sponsors, co-sponsors of it at Project Censored. And Abby, uh, her previous film was called Gaza Fights for Freedom. So now we're getting into the third rail of Israel-Palestine, right? Now we're getting into another topic that oh, we're not- Oh, yeah, that, is, that right? is, yeah, you don't- It's verboten. Yeah. Um, unless you come out 110% in favor of anything Israel, you're anti-Semitic, which is, of course, rubbish. But this goes down yeah, to- Yeah, I think, I think this you're an anti-Semite thing is really coming to the end of its life because I hope, a lot of I people hope, are starting to really- It's such a tired trope. Um, and, and it's 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 always sad to see liberals and neoliberals just uncritically embrace um, the state of Israel without any critique whatsoever. Uh, even though well, I, in, one thing I've never understood, Mickey, is nobody has ever asked me, "Are you pro or con India? Are you pro or con <laughs> the UK? Are you right. even pro or con the US?" Nobody yeah. ever asked that question. Yeah, are but you anti-Italian? <laughs> yeah, you, you know, so, yeah. I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole, people have been sort of re-educated about how they should talk about 
and mention it. But let's get back well, to well, Abby's it, story. And first. this is, it, you know, this gets into the APAC lobby and the fact that we have, you know, former APAC people at CNN and other places. And, you know, it's, it, well, it's it, not just CNN. We got to talk oh, about no. people in the it's government. All but it's all, I, it's across the spectrum. It's across the spectrum. I want to talk about, but I really want to finish talking about Abby. Yeah. So, you know, there are these, so boycott divestment sanctions is the movement to try to get the U.S. government and major U.S. companies to divest from the state of Israel because of their racist practices in Palestine, their oppressive practices against the people of Palestine. I'm not talking about the Jewish people. I'm talking about the Israeli government's well-known policies backed unilaterally by the United States and others. Uh, by the way, Israel is the number one recipient of U.S. aid, tax aid, military aid, right? That all aids and abets the illegal occupation of, of Palestine. So the idea that there is this political movement should not be against the law in any way. Yet, there are 30, some 30 states that have anti-boycott divestment sanction laws. In Texas, you know, if you, in other words, if you're going to be getting any money from the state or doing any contracting with the state, in some states, you have to sign a loyalty oath to That's, Israel. That blows my mind. It's mind boggling. the United States of America. Why do Americans have to sign a loyalty oath to another country? I don't so, get it. Because we were doing this Why in a public- legal? Why is that yeah, legal? Well, this is the importance of Abby's case. So we, Abby was being paid a certain amount of money to do a keynote at a critical media literacy conference about media literacy. Her last movie happened to be about Gaza. Her talk, while it might have encompassed or mentioned Gaza, was not about that. It was about media and it was about censorship, ironically enough. And here comes the state of Georgia saying, hey, wait a minute, you got to sign this oath and this pledge that you will not promote BDS in your talk because you're getting paid a certain amount of money that's going through the state. And there are numerous ways around this, but the conference organizers and Abby said, forget it, we're not doing this. And they canceled the conference over it. Whoa. And they didn't read, we were going to redo it in New England and they didn't do it at all. And then Abby sued. And so there were several groups that um, came on board to her lawsuit that hopes to overturn these American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC-like laws that are kind of brewed up in a private laboratory at a hotel for an ALEC conference with a bunch of corporate lobbyists that would love to see certain laws replicated in states that are a boon to corporations and private interests, right? So this anti-BDS law is a way to silence, especially students on campuses. Nora Barris-Friedman did a stellar book on the BDS movement and how it was rooted in a lot of America's youth and our campus movements and campus activism. Because, you know, the universities are places that, you know, invest in, in Israel and they wanted to have divestment at the academic level. Um, because, you know, basically what they're saying is these are these are systems that are that are supporting cultural forms of genocide that are inappropriate and should have no place in higher education. So Abby's case, we hope, is going to generate more attention and may lead to a reversal of these anti-BDS laws. And so it's also, interestingly enough, an opportunity to look at how critical media literacy conferences are one of the places where these dialogues are happening and they're being shut down. Guess what happened last October? 
our media literacy conference that we did. Nolan Higdon helped organize Critical Media Literacy Conference of the Americas. We put all of our uh, uh, videos up on our YouTube channel and YouTube last month disappeared our entire channel and acted as if it never existed. Alan McLeod just did a piece at Mint Press News for us about this piece about the Project Censored Conference sponsoring the Critical Media Literacy Conference of the Americas was entirely flushed down the memory hole at YouTube. And YouTube pretended that we didn't even do it, that it didn't exist, the videos didn't exist. So there is a movement in the big tech sector as well in the political world and in the corporate media world to silence the very critics of corporate media propaganda and to silence the critics of algorithmic oppression. And so I know that story isn't exactly the same as Abby's story, but I'm illustrating it because there is a concerted effort to target academics who study propaganda. Is and Abby's a First stuff. Amendment case? Let me just ask you this real quick. Is it only a First Amendment case? I mean, I don't because I don't understand how a law can be passed in one country to censor. Well, this is, ab I mean, it's absolutely it's a First crazy. Amendment case. It's, it's, it's a First Amendment case. Is for it beyond that? Is it, isn't it like, how can you legislate protection of another kind? I, I don't get it. It's totally mystifying to me. And I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not privy to what some of the other legal nuances are. But this is clearly a First Amendment case on the surface. And our case, and again, here's another part of the problem, as you well know, these private for-profit corporations don't fall under the protections of the First Amendment. Um, YouTube claims that they own that platform and you play by their rules or you're out. Well, the curious case with us is that we didn't violate any community standards or rules. They didn't tell us we violated any rules. They didn't even tell us they were taking down our channel. They just did it. They didn't warn us, they didn't tell us, they didn't explain it, they didn't answer questions. And when Alan McLeod, the journalist at Mint Press News who also writes for Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting, he's on the Project Censored show this week, by the way, too, talking about this very case. Um, when he asked them, they just said, well, prove that it existed in the first place. Hello, Winston Smith. Um, if Winston wow. Smith in George Orwell's 1984 was alive today, he'd be a fact checker over at Facebook, or he'd be an algorithmic programmer at YouTube that says, I don't know what you're talking about. We don't have any record that we disappeared a video, therefore it never existed. Well, were you, did you have it? Did you have the video and put it yeah, back up? Yeah, fortunately for us, we still have the videos and Nolan Higdon has the videos. And you know, one of the keynote speakers was Sophia Noble who uh, is at UCLA, who wrote the book, Algorithms of Oppression, about how big tech censored stories about LGBTQ people of color, exactly what we were talking about 20 minutes ago. Um, and so the irony that our channel is disappeared, that was addressing exactly this kind of censorship dovetails to the same kind of political oppression that we saw in Abby's case. So it's like across the spectrum that we live in censorious times, by the way, while a majority of people who are on the liberal end of the political spectrum are celebrating the big tech deplatforming of people like Donald Trump. And look, I'll be the first person to say, it's been nice to hear less of him, um, right? And the noise. But when you start cheering on censorship, let's remember how it always tends exactly. to backfire, right? Yep. And yep. just because Twitter has the right to deplatform people doesn't mean it sets a good precedent and, and it, this, by the way, obscures the bigger problem. 
how did we allow big tech, big media for profit to privately control the public sphere of communications so that it is completely outside the purview of the First Amendment, which makes it literally academic in the pejorative sense, that we don't really have a free press in these main uh, type of outlets or platforms. If you want to really see free press principled journalism with journalistic ethics, you generally have to go to the independent press. You have to go to the small outlets. You have to go to the outlets that maybe they wear a bias on their sleeve, but they are transparently sourced. They peddle in facts, not sensationalism or innuendo. And they're telling stories and narratives that you'll never see in the corporate press. And now, and look, there's a case that we covered last year about YouTube censoring LGBTQI stories. And this is a fascinating story. Andy Lee Roth wrote about this and actually wrote about it on Index and Censorship as well. The lawyer in this case, Peter Olbstler, uh, sued YouTube because when they went, there were a couple people that had LGBTQ channels that were censored on YouTube. They actually got a hold of somebody at YouTube that said, well, we didn't censor that. Our algorithms did. <laughs> oh, wow. So they're admitting, and I'm like, well, who made the algorithms? Some homophobe, some racist, some who knows who made an algorithm to oppress or target certain groups based on content. So it's not even a secret that this is happening. It's just that it's not, there is very little being done about it in a very big way so that most people are unaware this is happening. And when they find out about it, they're like, well, that's just one case or they must have done something wrong. I'll tell and, you, uh, coverage of COVID, the censorship is everywhere. It's everywhere. And it, the fact know, that you can't have debates Yep. Yeah, the fact that you can't debate medical science in public is astounding. I had a you know, YouTube, I had a I had one of my shows yanked off. Yeah, I know you have, and you're brave for covering it because most people won't touch those stories with a ten foot pole, right? Um, and and it's important to note when you're talking about those subjects, when you look at the so-called public experts like Dr. Anthony Fauci, and you look, Pfizer just came out and admitted that their vaccine is an extremely lucrative deal. Yet you have a lot of people saying like, they don't make any money off of this. Look, that's complete oh, rubbish. Yeah, um, yeah, there yeah. should be always room for questioning, suspicion. Hey, by the way, how about the fact that this is being tested now live on human beings, right? Oh. I mean, look, we, I don't wanna go down that rabbit hole and get into those weeds you know, right this moment, but there's so much that we aren't allowed to talk about. And here's another problem. When we do, we allow the corporate media to frame people that ask questions as lunatics, to negatively use the CIA term conspiracy theorist, to paint anybody that challenges any establishment narrative as the same degree of lunatic. Right. And look, not all conspiracy theories are equal. Some are conspiracy fact, some are conspiracy speculation, some are conspiracy never happened, therefore in the negative pejorative um, you know, sort of uh, um, Hofstetter paranoid style of American politics kind of way, right? Like there are some things that people peddle that are not accurate or are not true or are not supported by facts. But notice how the corporate media glom onto those to paint a broad brush so that anybody that challenges an official narrative is painted as a lunatic, right? And that goes back to the 1960s, 1967, um, you know, as Mark Crispin Miller and Lance DeHaven Smith unearthed um, in their in uh, Lance's book, Conspiracy Theory in America, 
uh, memo 1035-960 about the CIA using weaponized language to discourage people from investigating the Kennedy assassination yep. and the Warren Commission. And you know this back I have and that document. I, yeah. well, you know, it, it's interesting because that whole conspiracy theory thing is now, I think, starting to boomerang against the press and and people in the intelligence good. agents from the intelligence agencies who are official spokespeople. The minute you hear them say it's a conspiracy theory, time for you to go look into it because yeah, yeah, right. it's something there. Censorship <laughs> backfires. The yeah. labeling and weaponization of language yeah. backfires. Right. Um, yep. Yeah. And and the, the interesting thing is like so on one level, um, it's interesting to see people look at QAnon. And, and, and some of the business with QAnon and say, my gosh, how could you believe some of these things and, and, and so on. And, and in, but, it, but what's curious to me is that the same people that are decrying the lunacy of the QAnon shaman and the Flintstones lodge cap, you know, screaming in the, the, you know, the, the Capitol building with his spear flag, those same people watch Rich, Rachel Maddow talk about Russiagate every day. And, and and there's not a hint of irony in any of it. Exactly. They just follow their confirmation bias whole with about how Russia is behind the latest whatever. And look, I'll be the first person to say Putin is an authoritarian. R Russian politics are troublesome and problematic. They just had a huge crackdown on the press and an adversarial political candidate. Russia is not a perfect culture or society by far. Do they have interests in what happens in American politics? Absolutely. Uh, did the United States help tip an election to Boris Yeltsin back in the day under Clinton? Yes. And we've been meddling in each other's fairs for the better part of 75 years, 100 years, when the U.S. intervened in the Bolshevik Revolution during World War I. Right, right, right. So it's all down the memory hole, right? We, we're ahistorical creatures immediately yes. bumping into each other. with and that's, and that's why everything is so screwed up. We have From no, one conspiracy to another. No historical is it Alex well, I mean, look, and I'm not making a false equivalency here. I realize Alex Jones and Rachel Maddow aren't in the same, you know, in the same league per se. But I will say that what Rachel Maddow does is not much different than what a Jeanine Pirro or a Sean Hannity will do when they're pounding their confirmation bias audience for ratings, right? right. And, and she knows this, and he knows this, and they all know this, right? And part of this hyper-partisan mediated siloed kind of media and news reporting has driven these great divides. And it really has become one of the hallmarks of the post-truth world. And at Project Censored, we don't believe in post-truth. We believe in pre-truth as in the process of ascertaining transparently source facts that can then be assembled, discussed, and openly debated without reprisal, right? right. And, you know, the, the Indian poet Rabindranath Tagore once wrote, truth comes as a conqueror only to those who have lost the art of receiving it as a friend, right? And truth in this case is a process, not a cudgel to bludgeon our enemies with. Exactly. And exactly. we support that at Project Censored. So we're not, we don't litmus test for an outcome. We litmus test for a process that journalism has an integral role in helping the public perform. And when we are addled as a society with various kinds of disinformation and misinformation and sensationalism and triviality, um, when we are inundated with this kind of junk food news and news abuse propaganda around the clock, 
to get back to our friend Lao Tzu, um, if, if we're not careful, we're going to end up where we're heading. Well, where have we been heading? I, I would say where we are, frankly. Well, and my, my second follow-up to that is, are we there yet? <laughs> you know, yeah. we don't have a lot of time left. So right, one right. thing I want to do is I want to talk about some positive things. Yes, because there are positive things. That, that are happening that don't get coverage that our audience should hear about. And one of them is uh, the case for a public pharmaceutical system. There mm -hmm. are efforts now to try and um, look at, you know, the fact that these these pharmacy these uh, big pharma are given fed federal money, tax money to develop amounts. Yeah. yeah, and then they get these then they get these monopolies. I mean, if we paid for that research. Why can't we get a piece of the of, of and the they get process. and they get legal immunity when we're talking about vaccines, COVID, yeah. and everything back to 1986? Yeah, they get legal immunity they get legal if they immunity. damage you. Yes, you know, uh, and so I mean the profit motive it really takes away uh, so much. I mean, it really hurts the public in terms of, of the pushing of drugs that like opioids, I mean, the whole opioid, uh, Purdue Pharma, situation right. has to do with pushing, 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 pushing these drugs to the point where it, they created a, so the, the public pharmaceutical system looking into that is a very positive thing. It gets no coverage. The other yeah. thing that's very important, I think is state and county banks. Oh yeah, public banking. Public banking. Ellen, Brown. Ellen Brown's been on this for years, the Public Banking Institute. We've covered it for years, but you know, especially in California, you, they're making some real headway. I mean, in the Dakota has had for some time, right? Um, but in California, especially with the, the legalization of cannabis and, and how it conflicts with the 10th Amendment and federal law, um, all the cannabis places are peddling in cash Right, and so they need a state public banking system in order to be able to take those monies and sink them back into the public system, whether it's public health, public education, public infrastructure. We need public entities to support the public good. Private entities, by definition, support the private good. Who can invest? Who can afford it? Well, and the reason we have a public sector is because it shouldn't be determined by who can afford it. We are all born into the public sphere and we should have public institutions that support us as a part of our human rights. Well, especially since we pay into that system. Oh, absolutely. But, but going back to the public banking thing, it's important for people to understand what it means. What it means is that a public bank as opposed to a private bank does not have to meet stockholders requirements for constant, you know, constant profits, higher profits, profits, profits. <laughs> you know, and, and they are also mandated. They have to serve their community's interest. So basically it's the community's money being held by the community's bank that is going to look, look out for that community while, and not, rape that community financially yeah. because it has to serve that community and new jersey apparently is looking into it okay but this this would be and and by the way it should be pointed out that in in uh it's north dakota right that yeah, has north dakota. 
that North Dakota never went into the red during the 2008 crash. No, and they've been doing this for nearly a century. Um, and look, when you talk about the Dakotas, people are like, wow, libertarian, right, this, that, whatever. And it's like, hey, look, you know, those are interesting ideologies that people like to use again as weapons. But why don't we let's ignore that for a moment and take a look at what is the practice? The people in that state decided that there's something more important than profit. It's people, right? And if the Dakotas, if North Dakota can do it, <laughs> what's wrong with California? What's wrong with New York? What's wrong with Texas? What's wrong with Kansas, Thomas Frank? Uh, so what's wrong with these other places? And I'll tell you what's wrong with it is the profit motive, right? The banks have entirely too much sway, too much control, and too much lobby power over Congress and over the state legislatures. And that's that's what this story is also about, right? It's about how do you how do you get it through the skulls of people, like the general public. When you talk that way, they'll say, "Yes, why do we not have that?" Right? It's just like Medicare for all. When you talk about it and don't use buzzwords, people are like, "Yes, that sounds like a good idea. Why don't we have that?" Oh, and um, they have studies that show that that majorities of people are yes, yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that too with public banking and the, the public interest, because you might remember the fairness doctrine in media oh my God. Uh, back in 1987 when Reagan repealed that. Um, you know, that was kind of the same deal as like the media, the 1934 Telecommunications Act, the media can't do harm, it's supposed to support community. Well, we've gotten way far off the rails with that, and Clinton's 1996 Telecommunications Act further cemented it in the wrong direction. But we have a really good positive story in the top 10 about public media systems, argued by Craig Aaron at Free Press and Victor Picard, the great media scholar at the University of Pennsylvania Annenberg School, who argues that we need a multi-billion dollar stimulus bailout for the media to create a public nonprofit journalistic media system that also educates the public about critical media literacy and free press issues and take the power away from the private for-profit sector. We live in a news desert. We have a 50% cut in working journalists in the past decade and a half. Yep. Um, you're going in the wrong direction, Christina, and you're a veteran journalist at heart. You know, I know that for you, this is kind of like one of your, you know, a big part of your moral compass right, as a whistleblower, as a truth teller, right? You hold journalistic ethics to be some, you know, to be a standard, like a North Star, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and people like Picard and, and us at Project Censored, we've long been arguing that we can do this. If we've got $700 billion for the Pentagon, we can, for $30 billion, we can have a robust public media program. Yeah, but, you know? but I, I feel like, we would have had one already if it were in the interest of you know the the elites the political elite the corporate elite right and and i think i really think if if i were to i think that there's certain evergreen um project censored um areas that somehow should never ever be forgotten because they're so big one one thing i feel is a big black hole is you never get any that much coverage of the really powerful elites the billionaires you know the huge right. huge people who really they they determine the fate of millions of people we don't know what they well, think 
We don't like know. Peter, Peter Phillips writes about in his book, Giants, the global power elite, right. the director right. of Project Censored, has a whole book about those very people, right? Yeah, but, but, as in, but we never cover them as individuals, like no. what their personal views are. And these are public figures. The public, even if they want to say, oh, I'm a private business. No, as long FB's as you- knows is not, yeah. <laughs> no, as long as you hold sway over millions of people, you are now a public figure, yeah. and, you know, fair game to be covered, you know, everything from what you think, how you vote, how much money you have, whatever. But that coverage is, it's never there. And of course, if, if you try and do it in any really deep, consistent way, you're going to run into problems like Jerry Colby did when he covered the DuPont family. Well, yeah. And it's important to do. It, it's very important to do. And Peter Phillips' book, I can't advocate it enough. I mean, not just because Peter's a, a dear friend of mine, but sociologically, it's one of the more important books to come out in the 21st century that continues the work of people like uh, William Robinson, Holly Sklar, and of course, uh, C. Wright Mills, you know, going right. back to the 1950s. I mean, follow the money and Peter follows it better than most going into the deep networks of who these people are. And by the way, that's not conspiracy theory. It's a reality that these people work together to achieve their own objectives at the expense of the public. They do it all the time and they actually do it in Davos and they do it at the Bohemian Grove and they write about it in their economic magazines and they write about it in foreign policy magazines and it's on display. You just have to know where to look for it and follow who those players are, right? And we see that with people like Bezos who owns the Washington Post, right? Who has a $600 million cloud contract with the CIA who had his newsroom rewrite the rules to stifle and gag any of the reporters who couldn't report negatively about any other Bezos-owned businesses in their private time on their social media. I mean, this kind of insidious, nefarious practice of censorship should be called out from the rafters of every media organization in this country because it's detrimental to all of them and all of us. And that is one of the evergreen sad stories is that we have to always be looking in that mirror. Matt Taibbi wrote a great forward for us this year. Yes, he did. Um, another truth teller uh, and more and more people get closer to telling p painful truths, the more you'll notice they get ostracized from the system, oh, right? Yeah. Right, and, uh, yes, and of course, you, of course you, wrote, you have books full of those people. Uh, <laughs> Feet to the fire and, and I'm telling you, you're, the, the, the couple books that you did, I think are, uh, some of the most important contributions to media freedom and free press issues. And I'm, I'm not saying that to be sycophantic. Uh, I truly believe that your contributions to the area of critical media literacy and censorship have been historic and extraordinary. Thank um, you. Which is, by the way, full circle, why Andy Lee Roth and I and wanted you to, to write about this platform this important program that you're doing and congratulations on the award Thank that you. you just won. <laughs> yeah, right? that was came, that came out of the blue, yeah. We're on PRN as well. Um, but the kind of work that you do on whistleblowers, we've long supported the Whistleblower Summit, the Whistleblower Center. Um, Project Centered is a huge supporter of Chelsea Manning, of uh, you know Reality Winner, of, of course, uh, Julian Assange, Thomas Drake, yeah. John Curiaco, the list goes on and on and on. That these are the people, the canaries in the coal mine yep. that are telling us the evergreen stories. 
and again, it goes back to Rabindranath Tagore. Truth comes as a conqueror only to those who have lost the art of receiving it as a friend. Our job in journalism and our job in education, going back to George Seldes, is to basically tell the public what's going on. It's not to have some faux objectivity and whataboutism and other sideism and false equivalency. It's to lay out the facts and let the public decide what's happening and facilitate a robust debate that gets us to most logical, rational, humane uh, types of conclusions that fuel our public policy. Right? And it's also to, to tell the stories of the disenfranchised to try and, I mean, there, I, I do believe that you tell stories like these also to lift, to yeah. lift and to ch bring, bring about positive change and, and, you know, to hold accountable when it's necessary. And it's, uh, to me, it's just as important, if not more than, than the justice system, because it prompts the justice system. Yeah. It affects everything. As Nick Johnson from the FCC once said years ago in your second priority, his book, right? He wrote the forward to our 2016 book. He said, regardless of what your primary area of interest is, if your second priority isn't media freedom, media democracy, press freedom, then you're likely to gain very little ground in your first area of interest because the second area affects the way people perceive the first. Right. And we get stuck in that feedback loop. And so even though a project censored, we do uh, the we don't just do um, 24 7 365. Andy Lee Roth and I talk about how we do um, we do this. Uh, we do this all year long. We don't just do the 24 hour news. Yeah, 54, 12. We do the we do the yeah, we do this whole monthly yearly thing where we look at the big picture and we look at the trends for years and years and years. What are the trends of underreported censored stories? What have they been? Well, that helps inform us, find them again and again and again, so that we can try to broaden the corporate news frame and if not break it all together, right? Broaden it the degree to which that we say, look, we know New York Times pairs with ProPublica and does some good reporting on important issues. Why can't you do that all the time? Um, well, because, the time. because <laughs> it'll do that within a certain yes. limited, set of issues yes you know yeah. uh there, there are issues that are outside that frame they won't color outside those yeah. lines. and that's why we try to blow up that frame and say look we know you're capable but if you're really going to pr practice what you and look a lot of these organizations as you know these news organizations they love to wear objectivity as a badge of honor on their sleeve yeah they don't practice it they don't practice it right yeah. And no, so, well, that's the, but that's the veil right there. That's the it, veil. That is the veil. And yeah, we like right. to pull, we want to pull back that veil and whistleblowers and independent journalists help us pull back that veil. And at Project Censored, we, we don't give voice. We simply offer another platform for people that we think their voices should be way louder. <laughs> you know what? We're going to leave it there because we're at time, but I... This has been fantastic talking to you, and uh, we'll have to do it again, Nikki. Thanks, uh, Christina. For it's on. always a pleasure. We didn't even get to talk about the movie. So, uh, United States of Distraction, Fighting the Fake News Invasion. You can get it for free at our website, projectcensored.org. You I'll can learn about our book, our book, our radio show, and the top 25 every year going back to 1976 projectcensored.org. And thanks for everything you do, Christina, and thanks for having us on. Likewise. Take care, Mick. You too.